that goes. Uh, let's get started tonight on our 13th lesson in Ephesians. Um, as I've told you every week, good returns. I heard from someone today uh, that was new. I, I don't think we'd ever heard from them in our ministry before that, that told us they had a long vacation drive, discovered our study on Ephesians, and started listening. And, and then nine hours later, they were through the first nine episodes and said, I come back to my church and was decided we got to teach Ephesians. And so uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and to know that, and I met someone in Missouri this weekend that meets every Wednesday night and they just did John number 113. So uh, they're pretty good ways down the road, maybe slightly ahead of Clint, who I think is uh, listening to one per week. But um, so these are, these are still touching lives and People are at different stages in the journey. That's, that's pretty exciting. Um, tonight, I want to minister on the mystery revealed. This is part of what will probably be um, a little unofficial trilogy inside of Ephesians. Paul's going to talk about the mystery for a while in Ephesians 3, and we're going to try to reveal what Paul meant by that phrase. Mystery is a word Paul likes to use. He uses it across several of his epistles. And I think it's because Paul felt like he was uh, unveiling something that no one else was really unveiling. And that's fair because Paul is preaching the resurrected Christ. He's preaching what uh, he calls the gospel that had been revealed to me. We kind of sometimes call that the finished work or new covenant or grace. Uh, you should probably just call it Christianity as you know it. That's really what Paul's preaching. Um, and in his day, it was quite controversial. He's a Jewish man who has, for the most part, observed Judaism his entire life, but now he meets Christ and he starts to sort of push back against some of those formulas and some of those norms. And so tonight we run into one of those moments that uh, we have to really press against a little bit, something we say every week. Every week I tell you, you are a disciple of Christ. You're not a disciple of Paul. You follow Jesus, you don't follow Paul, you don't follow James, you don't follow John, you don't even follow the Bible. I know we like to say, I follow the Bible. Truth is, I follow Jesus, and uh, I look for him in the Bible, and the Bible shows me so much of his life and so much of his revelation. Um, the, the reason I say you can push back a little bit against that tonight is not, that's probably not the right way to say that, um, so let me try again. We still have to acknowledge that the Apostle Paul is a recipient of what we call the New Covenant as far as the revelation of it. And how you feel about Paul's theology is going to have a great effect on how you view Christianity in general. So while we follow Jesus, we don't make Jesus subservient to Paul. Like we don't read something that Jesus says in Mark and then go, yeah, but Paul... And then to just ignore Jesus. I think it's the wrong way to approach Jesus. It's just to ignore him because Paul said something. Um, but at the same time, you do need to come to some sort of consensus with that battle inside of you that Paul really matters and that what Paul had to say was important and that's why it stands the test of time. And the reason I say that is because part of this mystery being revealed is going to be something that Paul thought was Never obvious in the Old Testament, but was under the surface. Obviously, not everybody agrees with Paul because they don't all agree with him in his day. They don't all agree with him now because there are those who still don't see Jesus as a Messiah that still adhere to Old Testament scriptures. Uh, modern day Judaism does not see Jesus as a son of God, nor as Messiah. Great teacher, great principles, not the promised one, and therefore any... 
references that we might think we see to Christ in the Old Testament or to the church in the Old Testament, they're going to reject that. So it's not anything new to, to have multiple ways of approaching that, that subject. So I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to start with the first couple of verses, and we're actually going to work through verse 7 tonight. It'll take us a few minutes to get there, and then we're going to try to unveil this mystery. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. I want to just pause for a moment in that first verse with a phrase that is a little odd to grace people, and that's the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Because I think of myself as a son. You think of yourself as a son or a daughter of God, and you should. In fact, Paul told, told the Galatian people that the Spirit of God is in us crying, Abba, Father, we are the sons of God. Um, we're not the Son of God, capital S, but we're the sons of God. We're part of the children of God. We have the authority to call ourselves that. We don't think of ourselves as prisoners. And maybe that's a good thing because um, we've had such a difficult time coming out of religion where we thought of ourselves as sort of under the thumb of God or trying to jump up high enough to get God's attention all the time with revival or moves of the Spirit. So said, I'm okay with leaving behind slave talk, servant talk, prisoner talk for a while, but I don't want to lose the utility of this phrase. I was praying about this today. I go, God, well, if I had you know, two sentences I could say, on what, how do we justify Paul saying I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ? My thoughts were this. There's great utility in the phrase prisoner because you could think of it like, escaping the love of God is like a prisoner trying to escape from jail. Good luck. And so think of prisoner of Jesus Christ as I'm a prisoner of what Christ has done for me. I can't get away from it. I am a prisoner of Jesus in the same way that a prisoner can't escape his cell or his conviction. I'm a prisoner of Christ in the way that I can't escape my forgiveness. I can't escape what he did for me. I can try and I can't outrun his love. I'd prefer to see prisoner that way. So gladly, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In that, I'm a prisoner for what he's done for me. I can't outrun his love. I can't outrun his mercy. I can't exhaust his grace. That's part of that mystery. So think about that, the, the utility of that. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Let's work on dispensation for a moment. I'm going to tell you what it is, and I'm going to knock a couple of sacred cows over in regards to this word. It's the Greek word, oikonomia. Oikonomia, literally the management of a household or the manager of household affairs, and thus in the way the New Testament uses it, it would be the management or the administration of someone else's property, a.k.a. the phrase stewardship might work a little bit better than the phrase dispensation. And just to show you that in another passage, exact same Greek word, and this stuff frustrates me to no end as a Bible student, is whenever you have a Greek word that gets translated into the English in one verse, and then you have the same Greek word in another verse that gets translated into a totally different word in the English. And because we're thinking in English and not Greek, we read that word and we create a whole different thing than what that word should mean. And it could have been solved by just saying the same thing twice. My biggest pet peeve of that is John 14. Um, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then that's a big old house on a hill with a picket fence and three-car garage and 
you know, seven bedrooms. And then later in the chapter, same word, they translate it abode, which is fine. But if they had translated it the second time as mansions, the second time sounds something like this. You love him. He loves you. We make our mansion inside of you. But because we didn't put mansion the second time, we hear, I love him. He loves me. He, make, he lives in me. And if mansion would have been what he's in, maybe we could have killed this theology of mansions on the hillside and glory and started a theology of God's happy to be at home inside of me. Well, that would have been a really, that would have helped. That would have helped a long time ago. Okay, so pet peeve, Greek word, translated to English. We just decided to change the word because, you know, I don't know, maybe it, uh, we didn't like it there. Well, let's try it elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, 17. Paul says this, same guy. He's using the same Greek word, by the way. It's us that changes it up. I, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Paul's like, I gotta do this. I have a job to do. This isn't just something I'm doing as a hobby. If I do this willingly, there's a reward. But if it's against my will, I've been, been, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Or if you used the English word from Ephesians, I've been entrusted with a dispensation. And it's possible that there are English translations that translate those two words the same way. It makes sense here. If I do this willingly, I have a reward. If, against, if it's against my will, there's days I don't want to. That's a good admission, right? I, otherwise, I think you're lying. I mean, no matter what it is you do for the Lord, there's days you go, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. Paul goes, that's okay. On those days, what I remind myself is I've been entrusted with a stewardship. I've been put over someone else's property. So I have to take care of this place. It's not my place. They're paying me to take care of this place. If I don't take care of this place, I'm not doing my job. I don't have to love it every day, but I do it. So stewardship then is the word that Paul uses. And so when Paul says a dispensation of grace has been given to me, what Paul actually says is a stewardship of grace has been given to me. I am steward over this message. Even if I didn't want to preach it, I have to preach it because I'm a steward over something that doesn't belong to me. I'm not preaching my message. I'm preaching his message. Now you say, what is the big deal about this stewardship dispensation business? Okay, well, let me knock down this little sacred cow. When I came up learning the Bible, one of the sort of biblical tricks, one of the little tricks you could use to learn the epochs of the Bible was called dispensational theology. And part of dispensational theology was dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is, was a teaching in which God moves in different ways in different dispensations of God's will. So there are times when it's God's dispensation. We would call it God the dispensation of conscience, we would say. That's way back pre-Mosaic law. People just live by their conscience. They weren't doing a very good job. So then God gives the law, and we enter the dispensation of law. And that is all the way up till Jesus' death on the cross when we enter the dispensation of grace. And dispensation of grace is where God chooses to move upon the earth with grace. And in all of these dispensations, it was a way to sort of categorize why God seemed different throughout the Bible. So it was easier for us to come up with a theory as to why God doesn't seem the same in Judges as He does in 2 Kings, as He does in Jeremiah, as He does in John. It's easier to come up with a theory of dispensations 
than it is for us to assume that maybe people were getting God wrong until Jesus. So we couldn't live with maybe people were getting God wrong until Jesus. So we just need to understand that God changed the way he dealt with people across time. And we would say we are in the dispensation of grace. Also, by the way, this is how that was a way that we could explain Revelation. Because we could say that early in Revelation, the dispensation of grace ends. And so whenever you could look at Jesus in Revelation and imagine that he comes in with a sword and he destroys most of the earth, you could say, how is that Jesus compatible with that Jesus? And we go, well, that Jesus was preaching in the dispensation of law. You're serving Jesus in the dispensation of grace. But the time is going to come when it's the end of the dispensation of grace and the introduction of the dispensation of the kingdom. Confused yet? And so what happens then is that we break God's actions down into squares of time. Some of them are really short on the calendar of human history. Some of them are long. Some of them are indefinite, like the dispensation, the dispensation of grace, indefinite. Like how long is that going to last? Don't know. We'll know when Jesus comes back. That's what we would say. We'll know how long it'll be when Jesus comes back. And we got that from one phrase by Paul. The dispensation of grace that has been given to me, we went, dispensation of grace sounds like an era, an epoch of grace. Never in the Greek does that word mean period of time. That word means stewardship of somebody else's property. So when Paul goes, there's been a dispensation of grace given to me. What Paul says is, I have a stewardship, I have a job to do. It's deliver grace that's not mine. I don't own this message. I'm simply a carrier of this message. It's been... I like to think of the word dispensed better than dispensation because that's like the root of dispensation. So if I dispense something to you, then I have handed it out to you. A dispensation should be a dispensing of, not a period of time. Now that we've knocked that down, let's deal with this mystery, this grace as Paul sees it. Go back to Ephesians 3. Oh, and by the way, time out. I know that I skipped about 5,000 streams of dispensational theology right there. And I'll get response from someone who wants to send me YouTube video links from their favorite so-and-so who wrote four books on it. And I just don't bother because I'm not going to watch them. <laughs> I've been down the road of this. I've been there. I've seen it. I've read it. I've owned them. I know I gave you the elementary version. We're not going to spend time going interlayered dispensation. But at the end of the day, by the way, dispensationalism then opens the door for God to deal differently with people across time legally, which is why dispensational eschatology becomes a problem because it has God dealing differently with the church than it does with Israel. And I don't know how much Bible you need to know or know before you realize that there's a problem when the Jesus of Calvary and the resurrection suddenly starts having different ways in which he deals with the very people that he was supposed to have no respecter of persons of. And that's one of those underlying formulas in dispensational theology. Okay, moving on. Ephesians 3.3. 3. Now that by revelation, here's how it happens. Here's how it happened for Paul. And spoiler alert, here's how it's going to happen for you. Here's how it did happen for you. By revelation, he made known to me the mystery as I've briefly written already by which when you read, 
You may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I don't want to stay on that parenthetical too long. It seems to be as if Paul's sort of qualifying the fact that you guys have already been reading about this. If you don't understand it, just pray about it. It's sort of what he's saying. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. It's now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and to his prophets. All right, let's get, let's get busy on mystery revealed. Um, no, let's read it out. I forgot that I gave you six and seven. We're going to come back to this in a minute. Let's read it out. The, the Gentile, this is the two verses we'll cover at the end. The Gentile should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. All right. Uh, the mystery revealed. Let's start with Revelation. Because any mystery that is revealed by the Holy Spirit is going to be revealed by revelation, not by knowledge. So you do not come to this with a plethora of knowledge, having a bunch of stuff thrown at you. Someone asked me today about how to handle a disagreement in a Bible study or a life group. Someone said, well, I, this is what I believe. And my response was, I would say, well, I respectfully disagree and move on. Because if you can stand here all day long, volley scriptures back and forth. I mean, you can come up with a verse. I can come up with a verse. You can come up with a verse. I can come up with a verse. And I can do this all day. I mean, we, you know, we could go back, forth, back, forth, back, just tennis with scriptures. And really all that happens is everybody else in the room is just getting uncomfortable. They're just watching this go back and forth, back and forth. It doesn't really solve anything. And so at the end of the day, no matter what it is that we're talking about, what we have to have is a revelation of something. And that, that's revealed not just by knowledge, not just by hearing, by seeing, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. What I, how I say it is all of our Christ epiphanies, and this is where Christ is revealed to us, all of them are actually revelations, but they're on the back of encounters. And that, to me, means that you, you, maybe you encounter Christ in your reading of your Bible. Or you encounter Christ at church, in a service, at, in worship, at the end of a sermon, during a sermon. Um, testifying to someone, witnessing to someone. Maybe you don't even expect a revelation of Christ, but you have it. They're on the back of things you do every day. You don't have to go into your revelation room to receive from God, is my point. Wait for a revival to receive from God. You're living your life. You're having your encounters. I'm encountering you. You're encountering Him. You're just walking through life, and you see Jesus through those encounters. What I love about this room, any room, particularly this one, because we know one another so well, is that you really get the opportunity across time to see Jesus in each other. You know, I like how Jesus looks in you, all of you. I like how he expresses himself through you. It, it keeps us from being bland. It keeps us from all being the same flavor. We ought to embrace that kind of diversity in a church, not fight against it. Like, so that we all sound the same, look the same, dress the same, sing the same, preach the same. That's boring. See Jesus through those other lenses. And so in a way, these various encounters you're having in life are just avenues by which to have God reveal himself to you. Then the mystery is revealed only by revelation. So that's how Paul starts. He goes, God's got to reveal this to you the same as he did to me. And then there's this. And this is where we want to spend a little time tonight. The revelation of the mystery was not obvious to the Old Testament world. And what I mean by not obvious. It was not obvious that there would be an eventual union of Jew and Gentile that would constitute the ecclesia. Ecclesia, the Greek word that's, that's translated church. Ecclesia, called out ones. Israel saw themselves as, and I'm going to use an anachronistic word, okay? They did not use this word. 
We use this word. They didn't, but we're going to use it anyway for a minute. Israel did not see themselves as a... uh, They saw themselves as a church. Okay. They didn't use the word church. But the Greek word that's translated church was Old Testament congregation or assembly. So remember when Moses comes down from the mountain and he brings the Ten Commandments and the Bible says the assembly of Israel was gathered at the mountain? That, if it were being translated into our language, would be the church was standing at the bottom of the mountain. Moses came down and talked to the church. When they thought of the church, they would have thought about the collective body of Jews. Um, dispersed around the world, whatever. They would never have envisioned it could be Jews, Assyrians, Philistines, Romans, Greeks. It's not possible. It's our word. That's the way they would have looked at it. We are the Ecclesia. We are, because who's called out ones are we? We're God's called out ones. And God doesn't call out Philistines. God doesn't call out Assyrians. And God doesn't call out Romans. God calls out his own people, his own kid, his own kin. Otherwise, why are we circumcised? We're, we're, we're trying to think like Old Testament Jewish mindset. Why are we circumcised? What's the point in tracing our lineage to Abraham if anybody gets in? What's the point in being circumcised? If it's not for to pass the knowledge of the covenant through the, the, the seed of the Father. So all of these things are the ecclesia. So in an Old Testament world, I'm talking Genesis to Malachi plus the Hebrew scriptures, which in case you don't know, are more than Genesis to Malachi. That's what we call Old Testament. But the Hebrew scriptures incorporates an an entire corpus, a lot of which we don't even use. But in that entire corpus, there was no evidence that they had a direct knowledge that someday the congregation would include others. And so Paul says the mystery has been revealed by revelation And the mystery has been revealed not to the prophets before us, he says in Ephesians 3. They didn't see what it is that I'm about to show you. So the union of Jews and Gentiles in the church, there was definite Old Testament silence. But the silence on the matter was relative. The silence was not absolute. And and, and what I mean by that is there's no moment in the Old Testament where they directly said, hey, someday the ecclesia is going to consist of Gentiles. That verse isn't in the Old Testament. But it wasn't absolutely hidden. It's kind of like that thing that hides out in there. Like, for instance, God says to Jonah at Joppa, go to Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Now, Jonah has a lot of good physical reasons not to want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh kills people. They stack their skulls up in mountains outside the city and some Archaeologists think they skinned their victims alive and hung them out over furniture and used them as leather. I mean, there's a good reason not to go to Nineveh. Jonah goes, I don't want to go to Nineveh. Now, we don't find out till later in the chapter, later in the book, that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because Jonah knows God. And Jonah knows that God will forgive Nineveh if Nineveh asks. And he's kind of afraid they'll ask. And he's really afraid that God will say yes. And Jonah don't like him. And he wants him to die. But the real key to the Jonah story is that Jonah is the first person in the Old Testament that God specifically sent to preach God's message to non-Jews. Nineveh is full of Gentiles. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's literally the Assyrians. It doesn't get any worse than this. And Jonah runs from the call, not because he's afraid of Nineveh, though he might be a little afraid of Nineveh, but he's really more afraid of God. 
and what God will do if the people repent. You can't get around that little story in the Bible. And if that story exists, that means that God must not be as against Assyrians as you want him to be. At least that's what Jonah concludes. So it's not absolute that God doesn't want the non-Jew in. Otherwise, the Jonah story absolutely would not exist. Look at this text. Isaiah 19. Here's an example of how it's not absolute. Verse 24 and 25. This is prophetic language. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. By the way, Assyria, capital city, Nineveh. So there's your Jonah people. Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. God's got an idea having a big three. He's going to bring in non-Jews outside the tribes. He's going to bring them in, and he's going to call them his own. And I'm going to bless them. My people, my hands, my inheritance, and they're not all Israel. So it's there. It's simmering. It's way in the background in the Old Testament. It's not loud language. There's not an overt lights flashing verse that goes, God wants to bring Gentiles in. And then Paul meets Christ on the road to Damascus. And Peter meets Christ on the rooftop in Joppa. And in all of these instances in the book of Acts, you've got God bringing Gentiles in to the kingdom of God. And when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, here's what he says. Chapter 3, verse 7, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now this is a pretty fascinating text because Paul makes a conclusion. Did you catch it? The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith. Where did he get that verse? Remember, it's not an overt verse in the Old Testament that God's going to save a bunch of Gentiles. So Paul reimagines the whole Abraham story. And he goes, hey, Abraham wasn't a Jew. Abraham was a Gentile. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like God's willing to start with Gentiles. If he could save Abraham, he could save anyone. And so Paul starts to develop this theology that says, based upon his revelation he receives from Christ, is that what Christ has done is to bring into one, to make Israel one of three. That's a, like a mirror of the Trinity, by the way. That's sort of Jewish talk. What we talked about last week, they love those triads, 30, 60, 100. And so you got the Assyrians, and you got the Egyptians, and you got the Israelites, all of these coming together. And so Paul sort of reimagines it. Let me give you one more. Paul standing in front of King Agrippa. King Agrippa knows his Old Testament, by the way. So Paul says this in Acts 26, verse 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, I witness both the small and great. I say no other things than those... Look at this phrase. I say nothing other than that which the prophets and Moses said would come. That Christ would suffer, that He would be the first to rise from the dead, and He would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul takes the whole body of the Old Testament and in one message in front of a Jewish king, King Agrippa, he goes, the entire Old Testament body points forward, not just to Christ, but it points to Gentiles being able to receive 
the light. Let's go back to that sixth verse. Remember this. Paul said that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Let me make it really simple. The mystery revealed is, simply put, Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's it. That's the whole, that's the whole mystery revealed. Now, Paul's going to work on this for most of his ministry. Honestly, most of Paul's ministry is that sentence. Gentiles, you get it. Whatever a Jew gets, you can have. And Paul's going to go into a lot of deep water with this. But at the end of the day, the mystery revealed is not... I, I, I thought about this when I wrote this sentence. The mystery revealed is simply put, Gentiles are fellow heirs, but it's not simply understood. It's simply put, but it's not simply understood. And it was the most controversial thing that Paul had to preach. Was to say that, hey... Gentiles get what we get. They get to come in because Christ has come as the fulfillment. Now, you, you heard me say this, and I think it was one of the monthly meetings we did recently. Uh, I think I said it here. I don't know. Um, Jesus comes to the earth as the fulfillment of everything Israel was called to do. Jesus came to do it. And to put a finer point on it, Jesus came to do all of the things Israel had failed to do and to do them all in one person. Jesus is the reason that the New Testament writers are silent about land promises. Like the Old Testament is full of, you guys are going to get your own land. I don't mean it's here and there in the Old Testament. I mean it's the message to Israel in the Old Testament. You're going to get your own land. You're going to get your own nation. You're going to have your own king. You're going to rule over the earth. I'm going to put someone on the throne after David, and his seed shall reign forevermore. And by the time Jesus comes, it's been over 400 years of absolute subjugation for Israel. Not only do they not have their own land, they don't have their own king. They don't control their own destiny. Jesus comes along and fulfills every promise that God gave to Israel. Does it in one man. Dies, goes, to the, goes into death, three days later is resurrected. And almost immediately after Pentecost, the dragnet of the kingdom starts to spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth. Remember, that's what God said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth. By, by Acts 10, God throws the net out to the house of Cornelius. Gentiles. By Acts 22, Paul stands in front of the king of King Agrippa and he goes, the whole purpose was to get Gentiles the light. And so Paul casts the net even farther. And go, by the time he writes to the Romans, he goes, I'm a debtor to the barbarian. You know who the barbarians were? Those are the Gauls. The dudes with the long hair and the beards down halfway down their chest that Julius Caesar conquers in Western Europe, those are called barbarians to the Christians of the New Testament. Paul goes, I'm a debtor of love to the barbarians. That language would never have escaped anyone's lips until Christ. Christ had that kind of effect on Paul to say, in fact, there's an Old Testament verse that says, my, son, my servant is far too great to come only for Israel. It's like he's far too much to just be for 12 tribes that are scattered around. So the reason that the New Testament writers don't talk about the promised land is because they had him. Jesus is 
The promised land. So that if you were a Gaul living in southern Norway in the second century and you came to faith in the resurrected Christ, southern Norway became the promised land. That was the thinking. It's like we're not looking for a piece of geography somewhere. We found the person of Christ who can be king anywhere and more specifically can be king over any who. (laughs) Not what language you speak, what color you are, what wealth you have, who's king over your land, but anyone and everyone can receive him. Paul then says to Timothy, he's king of kings, Lord of Lords. We love that phrase in worship and we love that phrase on t-shirts, but why did Paul say it? Because what he really is, is he's the king over all those other kings and the Lord over all those other lords. And he doesn't need to do it in a natural throne in one piece of property. Like you've always expected him to do it everywhere you go, he goes. So if he's Lord over you, he's Lord over that house. If, if he's Lord over a place in, in a marriage, he's Lord over everything that marriage touches, everything that family touches, everything that dollar touches. He's Lord over that. That becomes the message. And so Gentiles are fellow heirs is simple to say, and, but it's deep. It's so deep. Paul goes to his grave preaching it, teaching it, dying for it. It's to say they get in and they don't just get in. They get in God's way. I want to I use for you, I copied this directly from a uh, R.C. Sproul ESV reference edition Bible. I thought it was so good. I thought, well, I can't say it better and I'm not going to steal it. So I'll give it to you straight. Although the Old Testament gives occasional glimpses of a unified human race. True. We just gave some glimpses. Only in the light of Christ's sacrifice does God's plan become clear. In one magnificent act, he removed the enmity between himself and humanity, and he took away the divisions that fracture that humanity. We spent some time on that. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. He's torn down that wall of separation. He's made in himself one new human, we talked about. Paul had reflected before on the unusual way God included Gentiles among his people. Contrary to the rules of agriculture, The Gentiles were a wild branch grafted into a cultivated tree. I like that phrase, contrary to the rules of agriculture, because you don't graft in a wild branch into a cultivated branch. But Paul either doesn't know that or doesn't care, or he thinks it really helps his illustration. I think that's probably it, where he says to the Romans, he has grafted you in. I thought a good place to land tonight would be that to the Romans. Look at Romans chapter 11. Verse 24, I'm using the ESV here, through 27. If you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, this is Gentiles, and you were grafted contrary to nature, there's contrary to the laws of agriculture, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, Israel, be grafted grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul's prayer is, look, God isn't finished with any people. And so don't think, Gentiles, just because the gospel has went out to you that God isn't speaking to Israel, because Paul has a heart for Israel. Lest you're wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. There's Paul's word again. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, I love this phrase. And this is why I use the ESV, because they nail this out of the Greek, I think, this conjunction. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
Because a lot of people like to quote Romans and go, the Bible says all Israel will be saved. So at the end of the day, God's got to save every Jew. But what Paul is saying is, Gentiles, you've been grafted into a vine. You didn't do anything. Don't brag about it. It's just by faith that you're here. God's not left alone his own people. In this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The fullness of the Gentiles coming in is the way that all Israel will be saved. So Paul expands the definition of Israel. To say, all of those who come in to the tree, wild branch or natural, that's Israel. He goes, and in that way, all Israel is saved. Because all that are saved are Israel. All that are saved are the people of God. It's not that God's got some people still out there not saved. Paul goes, the only people he's got are in the tree. All that come in are Israel, so that all that come in are saved. Let's look, look, look just a little further down. Paul kind of cleans it up five verses later. 32. God has committed them all to disobey. I love this verse. I think I, I, think I gave you guys this verse like four or five months ago. And no, it wasn't you. We, did, we dealt with this. We didn't, dealt with this. we didn't deal with this deeply. I think that was somewhere else. And I remember thinking um, how much I wanted to do an hour on it with you. That's what it was. Um, 32. God committed all, all as Jew and Gentile, to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I'll save 33 for a second. I'm just you think about this. 32. God wants to have mercy on every human so God confines every human under disobedience. By putting every human into the same boat, he can pour mercy on every human. Put everybody in bondage so that you can deliver everybody. Romans 11.32 is Paul's climax of the book. First chapter, he goes, um, some of you have broken the law of God that you knew you were breaking it. Some of you just broken the law of the creator God. You didn't even realize you were breaking it. And then there's all this language about Jews and Gentiles. And he gets to the end of chapter 11. He goes, you know what? At the end of the day, what God's really done is all of you are in disobedience so that all of you can have mercy. And I, I believe that Paul was so amazed by this. He had this revelation that everyone's in the same boat so that God can show mercy to everybody. That's so incomprehensible. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He goes, what I really can't tell you, I can't even plumb to the depths of how good God is. He puts everybody under bondage so that he can be merciful to everybody. I can't explain to you how that's possible. How unsearchable are the riches of God. How far past finding out are his ways. Rather than arguing and fighting about who can get saved, who gets saved, whether everybody gets saved, whether anyone gets saved, why can't we just land with Paul in Romans 11.33 and say, man, God is rich in wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. But we can't land here because we want answers, dadgummit. We want to know who it gets in, who's out, why they're in, why they're out, who gets in. How's this thing all come down? Paul goes, I'm, I don't know. I don't know how to land. And so I just say to you, how unsearchable are God's riches? How far past are his ways from finding out? And I'm okay with landing there tonight. I'm okay with ending with just saying this. 
I think Paul revealed the mystery to be that the Gentiles get in and they're joint heirs. I think Paul also saw that Israel was not forgotten about. And I think that Paul tried to redefine what Israel was by saying whatever gets in is Israel. And then I think Paul realized that that's got holes in it too. And so he said, you know what? God made them all bondage so that God can be merciful to all. And if that confuses you, how past searching out are God's riches? Isn't God good? I don't know how to explain it. I don't need to explain it. That's how good God is. And then he says an amen at the end of that chapter, a, a relatively an amen, almost like he's done talking. He's so he's circled the argument so hard that he doesn't know what else to say. He goes, God's beyond finding out. So I say to you, God is beyond finding out. I think he's unsearchable. How unsearchable are his judgment? How far past finding out are his ways? I'm just glad that he has mercy on all. And I don't need to know the fullness of the mystery. I can just appreciate the mystery. Gentiles get in. I'm a Gentile. I get in. That's good enough for me. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Sometimes thanking you is all we really know how to do. The mystery that's been revealed is the whole reason we're sitting in this room. The mystery revealed that God wanted to bring every single one of his children into his son. And I don't know exactly what it means, and I don't know exactly how it happens. And how past finding out are your ways, how unsearchable are your riches. You've confined us so that you can be merciful to us, and we thank you. And I know we don't have to know all the answers. And we never will. But may, Lord, we too, as Paul, have revelation. On the back of all these Jesus encounters that we're having through our scripture reading and through our talking and through our study, may we have true revelations of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.